0: Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmaker's Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. This episode is the second of two conversations with the visionaries behind the venerable science documentary series, NOVA. My first conversation was with the series creator, Michael Ambrosino. And on this episode, I speak with Paula Absol, who served as NOVA executive producer for 33 years, retiring in 2019, when she was named Senior Executive Producer Emerita. Paula Apsel began her broadcasting career right out of college at Boston's WGBH Public Television Station when she was hired to type and distribute the station's daily program logs. Within a year, she was hired at WGBH Radio, where she developed the award-winning children's series, The Spider's Web. In 1975, Absol switched over to WGBH-TV as a production assistant for Nova's second season. One of her first productions was Nova's Death of a Disease, which was the first long-form documentary on the eradication of smallpox. In the late 1970s, Apsil was producing documentaries on artificial intelligence and genetic engineering, topics that rarely were touched in mainstream media prior to the 21st century. Apsel was asked to take over the top post at Nova in 1985, where she remained for three and a half decades. Among her most notable Nova films are the Miracle of Life sequel, Life's Greatest Miracle, The Fabric of the Cosmos with Brian Greene, and Making North America with Dr. Kirk Johnson. Other of her acclaimed productions are the large screen IMAX films, Shackleton's Antarctic Adventure, and Special Effects, which was nominated for an Academy Award. In addition to overseeing the NOVA franchise, Paula Apsel taught science communication at the University of California, Santa Barbara. In October 2018, Paula Apsel received the Lifetime Achievement Emmy Award from the National Association of Television Arts and Sciences. She was the first science journalist to receive this award. Following her departure from Nova, Paula Absol became CEO of Leading Edge Productions and started producing The Resistance Project, a documentary about Jewish resistance to the Holocaust. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do follow and share and leave a review. And now on to my conversation with Paula Absol. Hello, Paula Absol. Welcome to Making Media Now.
1: Thank you very much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: And it's, it's great to be speaking with you. So, you know, we want to talk about your, your time at Nova, your time, your considerable time, your distinguished time at Nova from 1985 to 2019, when you were the executive producer, and then also find out, uh, what's, what, what you've been working on since then. I know, uh, you certainly haven't been resting on your laurels. Uh, and I know there's a um, uh, interesting project uh, that is taking up your time these days. And we want to we want to get into that.
1: I flunk retirement.
0: You flunked retirement. Yeah, <laughs> OK, do so well. well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's probably one of the only things you flunked.
1: <laughs> I don't know about that, but I certainly have flunked it. So we'll see.
0: Let's wind the clock back a bit. However, your story is such a is such a great one. It's almost like um, it's so ready made for the big screen in, in the way that you began your career in in television. Uh, you come out of Brandeis University. You go right to work for WGBH in Boston. And what was the role you had?
1: So I was the log typist.
0: And the log typist, for those who are the uninitiated, what did the log typist do?
1: Well, every minute on television, broadcasting has to be accounted for. And it had to be accounted for in writing with logs. I actually went to the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. And I was the one, the girl who wasn't really a very good typist and still am not a very good typist who had to type all those logs. And um, so that was my job. It was pretty awful. The only thing that was really, really, really good about it is that the logs had to be brought around the station to several um, places every day. So as kind of a chatty person, I really got to know a lot of people and I got to know what was going on in the station because I went around uh, the station every day about 4.30 or 5 o'clock, bringing everything, um, bringing logs around. So that was one advantage to it. But other than that, I, I would say it was not just the worst job that i've ever had but the job that i did worst at <laughs> yeah
0: know. oftentimes there's a correlation there between the two so at that point when you were bringing the logs around and getting to know people were you thinking in your mind that that you had a strategy in mind like you were going to make yourself a known entity within the station
1: Um, My only strategy was that I really needed to get out of the job that I was doing and into something else. And since um, my husband was still at that time in graduate school in physics at uh, getting a Ph.D. at Brandeis. So, you know, I I wasn't thinking of making any big change. I was really happy to have a job. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it looked as though. Walking around the station, and I was in the tape room and master control, and all these producers' offices. It just looked like there's such really interesting things going on um, that I was plotting. How can I get myself out of here? And what? So what I what I did, my first step in my strategy, if you can call it that, although I don't think it was actually as conscious as that, was to volunteer as production assistant. For various productions that needed um, free labor,
2: hmm, so interesting. I
1: would do that, and mostly at, in the evening and on weekends. And I actually worked for Julia Child um, for that show, which was really great, and I learned a lot doing those things. So that was that was my, you know, what I did um, as kind of a relief from the job, mm-hmm. but. I didn't really have much of a strategy until one day an idea for a radio drama program for children came into my head. Um, It was one of those ideas that just came in fully formed. Um, It's called The Spider's Web, and I was going to read children's literature or have actors read these stories that I had loved so much as a child. So I didn't have any children myself then. And so I went to Bob Carey, who was then head of radio, and I asked him if I could do that. And, of course, I knew nothing about radio. I had no idea how to cut tape. I I had no idea of anything. I really did not have any dramatic experience. But I was very enamored of this idea. So I went to him, and kind of to my shock, and he said, yes. And uh, my boss in the scheduling office said, "Okay, as long as I would keep doing my job. So I was typing logs. And all of a sudden, that job that kind of took all day got compressed down to a couple of hours. And I got Livingston Taylor to sing the theme song for the Spider's Web. And I got a lot of actors. And, oh, I wanted to have posters put up around the station. um, And so I had a bake sale. (laughs) <laughs> and I made $50 and um, you know, to get
0: the posters printed up.
1: Yeah, I did. So these things kind of sound preposterous now, but, you know, GBH was just a place where if you're a really, really, really hard worker, mm-hmm. you really do anything. So anyway, all of a sudden I find myself and I'm producing this show five days a week. And it was a half hour show. And, you know, I didn't know anything about rights for books and stuff. And I don't know. We didn't worry about those things too much. Then our life was not run by lawyers. Yeah,
0: less litigious times. Very
1: different. It was, I can't tell you the creative juices in that place just were so powerful. Yeah. And I really wanted to be a part of that. So that started the spider's web. And I think I did that for about three years. And eventually it got me out of typing the logs and into radio WGBHFM as a, as a producer. So that was, that was, that was great.
0: And where did the, where did the ambition and the interest in science journalism emerge or, or did it matter that it, that Nova uh, was science oriented?
1: Um, yes. Well, I had gone from doing the spider's web after a while. I, I discovered that I really didn't like directing drama. And, I, and um, so I moved on and I became a news producer in radio. And I eventually became the statehouse producer for mm-hmm. WGBH Radio, which is really, really interesting. And I was very lucky to have a couple of mentors at GBH, Judy Stoyer and Alan Raymond, who I Taught me, you know, the ropes of journalism, which was really great. So I was into journalism, and I had been very interested in science in both, you know, all the time I was in school, in high school, and in uh, and at Brandeis. Um, my husband, um, as I said, was getting a PhD in physics, and I was just kind of immersed in that world. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there were a lot of science policy issues. Environmentalism was just really starting to become a very on the scene, a very vocal, very clear nuclear power, all kinds of things. And um, I was very interested in that. And I read a lot about it and I liked it. And then when Michael Ambrosino started Nova, I had wanted to make the move from radio to television. I figured that that was a step that made a lot of sense to me, but Mm -hmm. I didn't know one end. In those days, we shot 16-millimeter film, and I didn't know one end of a film camera from the other. I had never really worked in that medium at all. Um, And so somehow, so I was at this point a full producer in radio, doing well with a really a very good and very interesting career, and I liked it a lot. I really, I just took to journalism. I just really loved it. And when I went to talk to Michael and to John Ancher, who was the producer who needed a production assistant, I was willing to take two or three steps down from producer to PA. My family thought, my parents thought I was crazy because it was also a big cut in pay. But, you know, I figured that that would be, you know, I just, I admired Nova so much. I thought it was so ambitious to have a science program on PBS. It just seemed to me at that particular time when science was becoming much more visibly important to us as a society, mm-hmm. I just felt this is really important. And here I will have an opportunity to make really intelligent films mm-hmm. for Thoughtful, intelligent audience. It just seemed very, very, very exciting to me. So and
0: now you're in the realm. Now, the, so at that point, it brings you into the realm of visual storytelling, right? Through, through the Nova Films. Um, what type of an adjustment was that as a storyteller?
1: Um, I it I did not. I never had a problem making the adjustment to visual storytelling, because to me, the whole thing was the story Mm -hmm. that even in radio, even in radio news, that's about telling stories and telling people stories um, about the issues of the day in a way that really affects their lives and in a way that is compelling. And that's the same thing. You know, you have pictures. Yes, you, you need you need to learn how to make those pictures tell the story. But I never really had an, an issue with that. The issue was an hour-long film, a 52-minute film. These are enormously complicated um, little animals that have to be put together. And right at that point, my job as a PA, a production assistant, was to kind of carry the whole logistical operation on my back. Yeah. And yeah, and but what so that was a huge adjustment. I mean, in those days when we went on a shoot, I would carry twenty five thousand dollars in traveler's checks on my body. You know, I never went to a bank and got twenty five thousand dollars before in my life. So, you know, it it was and basically babysitting for a whole crew. You have to get them all over the country to places on time. So this was a whole different animal. But the great thing about it was in those days that my producer was John Angier, a former BBC producer, British producer, very, very talented, very artistically talented, really understood how to tell stories and how to tell them with pictures. And so as long as I got my work done, I could observe John and his process the as much as I wanted. And here's the funny thing. Now, today, how many years later? Decades later.
0: Nearly I 50. Still,
1: <laughs> I still follow the same processes that John taught me about taking notes, about rough cuts, fine cuts, treatments, how you put together a film, the mechanics of telling a visual story, same as I did. Way back then in 1975. So I learned a lot. And then I got to make my first film, which was kind of amazing.
0: Tell me what which film that was.
1: That film was called Death of a Disease. And John mm-hmm. and I were working on that film, which is about the eradication of smallpox, which is still the only disease that's ever been eradicated by human, by by medicine, mm-hmm. from the face of the earth. An extremely exciting story. And when we got on it, there were just a few more cases around the world. And we thought that there were some cases in Bangladesh and we were going to go there. Well, to make a long story short, there was a coup d'etat and we couldn't get there. And John kind of, he thought he wanted to start this film off with, um, you're looking at the last two cases of smallpox in the world. Well, that wasn't going to be all the, those cases. Everybody would have gotten well at that point. Yeah. And we didn't know of any others. So he kind of wanted to move on to something else. But we had spent a lot of money. So we had to make a film. And, you know, Michael said, no, you have to make a film. And and John said, well, Paula will make the smallpox eradication film. And I was so surprised. I thought Michael would shut that down immediately, because why would you have someone? I was still a PA, still very inexperienced. I would never, you know, run my own. Shop. Anyway, that helped me a lot. And I made my first film, Death of a Disease. And I went on to that was kind of the start of my career as a filmmaker.
0: And what year was that?
1: I think that was around 1975 or 1976. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was very exciting. And I'll tell you something, you'll appreciate this as a person who interviews people. So all these epidemiologists at the Center for Disease Control and other places all around the world who had done this huge medical accomplishment. Nowadays, the press would be all over them. In those days, nobody knew that this had happened. And news was just not the same. And so I was the first person to interview a lot of these epidemiologists. And it was just so incredibly exciting. And that's when I really developed my passion for interviewing people, which has always been what I love to do.
0: How did you learn to strike the balance, particularly with Nova, given the the um, high standards of sort of scientific rigor and gravitas that the series that the series had developed in that that you group to an even greater degree how did you strike that balance between the the scientific import while also making sure that this is going to be accessible to a lay audience
1: you know that's the whole trick isn't it mm-hmm. it's the trick with any with any story you're telling whether it's science or any other story to really find the story and find a way to tell a story that will enable you to give your viewers an understanding of the kind of thinking and the kind of process that the scientists had to go through to reach this goal and to tell it in a way that doesn't have any jargon that doesn't um that doesn't talk down to the audience I mean, if if you have to have a Ph.D. to understand ANOVA, you really the you've completely failed. So I think it's putting the emphasis on telling the story and trying to find in the story kind of a mission to be accomplished or an obstacle to be overcome. I mean, these have been, you know, since the since the beginning of oral storytelling mm-hmm. around that. Fire, or maybe even before they had fire, um, these are the kinds of um, these are the, the the kinds of themes that people have been looking for to tell their story, to get people on the edge of their seats, to see, you know, can this person solve this terrible problem? Can this person? Can a scientist get around this obstacle? And that's, that's kind of what I, I always looked for in, in making my films. And I found that if you can just find the right thing, it, it's not you're able to tell the story. A hundred really interesting facts are not going to make a good NOVA or a good documentary, any documentary. Right. It's the story story. And the story has to be about some kind of an obstacle, some kind of a conflict, some kind of a mission to be accomplished. Mm -hmm. And so once I kind of learned that these are the basic rules of storytelling. Once I learned that, that's how I structured my stories. And um, I found that it was, you know, I was more successful It wasn't easy by any means.
0: I I can't imagine that it was. So Nova goes on the air in 1974. You produce your first Nova a few years later. And then in 1985, you are made executive producer. Yeah. At that point, did you feel as if Nova as a brand had been established and tell me what you felt the sort of the opportunity and maybe some trepidation around, you know, you've been given stewardship of of this, um, you know, what, what is becoming the gold standard of science journalism.
1: Yes, it, it was extremely intimidating, <laughs> extremely. I mean, first of all, by that time. I had two children, so my life was entirely different and it could not be devoted 24 seven to any to any job. Sure. Because I had, you know, little kids to take care of. I had worked for commercial for a few years for commercial television Mm -hmm. um, and uh, with Dr. Timothy Johnson. Um, who's the ABC doctor. So yep. and I I learned a lot about commercial storytelling, which I think was very helpful. And the most thing was I'd spent a year as a fellow in the understanding of science at MIT. So I really had had a chance to be part of the journalistic milieu and really focus on a lot of the um, public policy issues that involve science. Mm-hmm. So I felt like I... You know, I, I was, guess I was as prepared as I could be. But that time, I probably made 15 films of my own, maybe more. I don't yeah. know. Um, But, you know, stepping into that job was very intimidating because, first of all, Nova had this stellar reputation. So you always think, wow, am I going to ruin this? You know, am I going to? And, you know, the, no show goes on forever. And the way NOVA stayed funded by PBS in those days was essentially that stations voted on you. So there, there was a realistic chance from year to year that the series wouldn't be continued. Hmm. So that was very scary. Plus, NOVA is, a, you know, you're making, at that point, I think we're making 20 new films a year. So that's... And then, you know, you're running an enormous operation. And this was at a time in 1985 when things were really changing. Mm-hmm. Um, they were filmmaking was getting much more expensive. Um, budgets were getting tighter. And also I, I came in with a feeling as, um, you know, Michael, did exactly the right thing. He brought over BBC producers or British producers who really knew how to make science films, and they taught us. But I felt in 1985, the day has come, the time has come, we need to be having Americans making these films. Not Mm -hmm. not that I didn't want some British films, but they, they were always and always remained part of the series. And this is absolutely nothing against British producers. They're brilliant talents but i mean what if you're not developing talent what is it that you're doing sure. you, you can't you can't continue to have a brain drain from another country forever you have to be developing home spun talent right. so that was also really my goal also i was very afraid that the system was going to start to tire of nova you know, nothing stays new and fresh forever. So right. I knew that I had to bring in new and innovative things. And um, I would say, Michael, that it took me about five years to make the changes that needed to be made at Nova, at least five years, and to feel that I knew enough to be able to reasonably sensibly and capably critique films which is really that's the job of the executive producer is really you decide what films you're going to make and there's a very small universe of those films so you mm-hmm. better make you don't you don't have infinite chances you better make the right decisions who's going to make those films and to help and support the director along the path of, of Conceptualizing the story and and shooting it and editing it. And so those are those are the only things that an executive producer does. But you better do them well. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time. I will admit to you, it took me a long time. The big difference between making your own films, and the film is really a mess. Yeah. It's a mess. And it's probably, you know an hour and a half, sometimes they're two hours, and you're supposed to be the wizard sitting there telling somebody, giving them the magic, you know, potion to make this film right. And it takes a lot of skills to do it, and you have to learn. It took me quite a long time. I mean, sure. I, I never thought I was the wizard, but it took me quite a long time before I could see my way to really, before I felt that I was really helpful to the
0: producers. During that initial five year period that you were that you were just referencing, uh, were you trying to establish or had there been established what you might call a uh, sort of a Nova template in the sense that, you know, a producer brings their film to you. But when that film airs, it's going to be a Nova film. Is there a concern or was there a concern with maintaining the individuality of of the the filmmakers' approach with what you had come to expect and by extension what perhaps an audience had come to expect from a Nova?
1: Yeah, I, I mean I think that's always an issue on any series mm-hmm. that that you, you have different filmmakers. And by this time, we had really kind of gone away from the staff model. Of Mm -hmm. producers, just too expensive to maintain to a freelance model. So here you're having different freelancers come in and make films, and some have never made films for your series before. So yeah, there's a certain there's a certain. I mean, you don't want every film to look cut it cookie cutter, right? But on the other hand, yes, there's a certain storytelling style. There's a certain visual. Style, And I I think one of the things that was very important in Nova was certainly important for my approach. And this is something I got directly from Michael Ambrosino is that there was a real emphasis on characters. And it's some kind of combination putting together the story, the visuals and the character. So, yeah. But I wouldn't say that, you know, that that was the toughest thing because when we had really good producers, mm-hmm. then we'd have to make more than one film. And when they started to make a second and a third film for us, they kind of started to to learn.
2: And yeah, also imagine. There's
1: a, there was a, I had an emphasis on action. I really wanted to see things happen. But there were two things that I knew that I had to do. I, I felt that I really needed to... Do something new for Nova, and what that was was I, I started producing not just hours but miniseries. Mm-hmm. The first one we did was one on human origins with Don Johansson, who was a scientist who had discovered the Lucy, the three point two million year old um, uh, human ancestor, way, right. way 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 back, and so and. These, I so I had to actually start raising money because these um, miniseries were very expensive to do because they were more than one hour. I think Human Origins was four hours and they were very complicated to do, but the audience just loved them and they started it started to really raise the ratings. And we went on from there and um, we made a, a a series of 3 films called The Elegant Universe based on the physicist Brian Greene's book on string theory right. and that was a hugely ambitious project but the audience really loved it and these really these mini series raised the visibility of Nova they also involved a huge amount of fundraising and we got to a point where the money that PBS gave us was really only about half of what we needed if we wanted to do seasons that contained these very special and highly visible and highly promotable mini series.
0: How did the advances in filmmaking technology from from cameras, from moving from film to video to digital editing, how did that impact uh, what you felt you could do and and the and the types of uh, production timelines you might be dealing with?
1: Well, I think I was a very late, late adopter. So mm-hmm. word for it. Yeah. Late adopter to video so i was really i was a curmudgeon about it and i was really um very old fashioned i did not like the look of video at all and long after a lot of other series and a lot of my peers had gone to video i refused to do it i just didn't like the way it looked until the cameras i think in about the beginning of the 2000s mm-hmm. the cameras started to look, to be, have a film look. Right. And that's when I allowed the series to go to film. And I mean, to video. Mm -hmm. And it cost us a lot because film is very expensive and it's very restricting because, you know, as... I like to shoot really long interviews. And Peter Hobing, one of my cameramen, used to sit and whisper in my ear, ten cents a foot, ten cents a <laughs> foot. Tell me that it
0: no pressure. But, I,
1: but right, no pressure. But with video, you could you can sit there all day and doing
2: Correct. it. Yeah.
1: I, that's kind of my milieu. So I would say that um video gave us a certain, was a very important advance because it gave us a latitude and with the development of smaller cameras to get the camera on the shoulders of the director of photography and really move around. You're not mm-hmm. on sticks so much. You, the films become much more dynamic, much less static. Right. So that was one thing. I think the other major advance, well, I think I would say there were three, I think, was graphics and animation, computer animation. And that's what allowed us to do the elegant universe, was that we were able to take Brian Green and the other physicists and actually put them in the image of this world of strings that we were imagining. And it was really hard to do it before with cell animation. I don't even know if we could have. Yeah. Um, so, and, and computer animation became a much, much more important part of our shows. And instead of the animation being didactic and some sort of to teach you that the electron goes here and the yes. proton goes here. Um, you could be inside those worlds and allow the viewer to really experience that world. And you just couldn't do that before. So that was great. And then of course it was video um, video and then computer um, and computer editing. And that's just changed everything because it just, it just allows you, I would say that in a way That's not different than film editing was. It's just better because it allows you to edit more and to make your film more Mm -hmm. perfect. Now, I'm sure that there are plenty of people who would totally disagree with me um, (laughs) on that. And there are plenty of people who on film editing took weeks and weeks and weeks to edit their films. We didn't have the luxury to do that. So, you know, if if you're working on a budget and you're working on a timeline, which we always were. But I would say that the um, that computer graphics really changed what we were able to do filmically because we were able to show the audience and to put the audience inside of the cell, inside of the atom, um, inside of the multiverse and um in a way that was much less didactic and much more dynamic and people
2: yeah
0: a, 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 a super powerful storytelling device uh in your in your three decades plus at nova uh what topics resonated uh most powerfully with audiences did you find like were there a, you know did, did you always know that if we do a if we do a show on this topic or that topic or another topic we're going to get people to watch.
1: Yeah, so it, it was always very curious. One thing that didn't resonate at all was medicine. So, you know, you'd think okay, this is this is the body that we inhabit. You would yeah. really think people would be be inter- well, let me put it this way. What they didn't like was programs about diseases. Sure,
0: sure. Yeah.
1: So, then nobody we, you know, we made some great ones. Yeah. But they never they didn't watch them. Yeah. So they don't want to turn on Nova and see about advances in cancer or other things. Um, they did like some, I mean, of course Miracle of Life was a very good, wonderful program that I wasn't responsible for. So they did these inner body programs, and this is also you know, something that animation was a great feat. those those, those did well um, or those did fairly well. Um what I think the physical sciences did extremely well, Elegant Universe, Fabric of the Cosmos, which was the follow-on to the elegant universe, um, about the multiverse, um, these, and about the nature of time and the nature of space. These did the audience just ate them up. Huh. They loved um, anthropology and human origins. They loved archaeology. They loved, um, we made um, the uh, a, a series about the archaeology of the Hebrew Bible. They ate it up. They loved it. So these were things, and they weren't, it wasn't necessarily um, intuitive. Mm-hmm. You know, you would sort of think about oh, people like medicine, they would like to see things that they could apply they hated it yeah (laughs) never watched them they were our least watched program but physics they and they liked space science but not human space flight those shows and i thought we made some great shows and it was very disappointing (laughs) to us but you know that people like what they're going to like. You can't. Well,
0: yeah, them. I mean, I you know, know d- that television, that- television producers and programmers are trying to discern the tastes of of the uh, audiences for since since television has been around and since film has been around, right. the the list of accolades that that you received and that Nova received during uh, under your leadership, or it's just it it's a podcast in and of itself. It's it's just <laughs> too long to go into. Culminating to a degree. In 2018, when you receive a Lifetime Achievement Emmy Award yeah. and you started out our conversation saying how you have failed at retirement. Uh, so bring us up to speed. What has been engaging you and driving you in retirement? And I, I, I want to hear about the resistance project.
1: Sure. Well, so and it actually starts with NOVA. You know, all roads begin and end with NOVA, I think. And, you know, it's really funny, Michael, because I'm here now in Florida at Pelican Cove, where my husband and I come for three months. And the reason I'm here is because Michael Ambrosino lured me here.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So um, in 2016, I made a film with Kirk Wolfinger of Lone Wolf Media, um, who had produced and directed many, many, many Novas for me over the years. In uh, Lithuania, the film started out to be so it was a film and one day he called me and he said, Paula, you need to get in a plane over to Vilnius, Lithuania, which I'd never even really heard of before. And he was with a group of geoarchaeologists led by um, Dr. Richard Freund, the late Dr. Richard Freund, unfortunately. And they were on the verge of discovering a tunnel that 80 Jewish prisoners of the Nazis had dug during the war in a place called Ponar, where the Nazis and their Lithuanian collaborators murdered uh, 100,000 people, 70,000 of which were the Jews from this city, Vilnius, um, known in Yiddish as Vilna. Mm -hmm. And when I got there, you know, I always talked, Anova, about the moment of discovery and Mm -hmm. how would be so amazing to capture it on film. But it it only happened to me this once in my career, that as the cameras rolled, using a technology called electrical resistivity tomography, they saw slices that they could discern were of a tunnel that had been used by, that had been 80... All 80 Jewish prisoners tried to use the tunnel to escape. Most of them were shot. Twelve of them had made it out to the forest where they fought with the partisans. The tunnel had been rumored to exist, but it had never been proven. And... The New York Times actually wrote a story about this discovery. It became one of the 10 most memorable stories, science stories of 2016. And when they wrote this story, it was in newspapers all over the world and in Israel and in the United States and in Russia, where the survivors' children were. They reached out to us. So we went and we interviewed them. They had never spoken about what their fathers had done before. So it was really an amazing, but it started me to think. How come. So this is a story of Jewish resistance. These these courageous people who, you know, dug this tunnel. I mean, that's kind of impossible. You know, you work all day. They were working all day, exhuming and burning bodies. And then all night with spoons and they were shackled. They dug a tunnel. And it worked. It stood up. It's about 130 feet long. I think.
0: How were they concealing what they were digging? How were they concealing the well, they excess gravel, dirt?
1: They did it at they did it at night, and they passed the dirt down along to the entrance, which they managed to hide. Wow! So, but it was a very small, very narrow tunnel. Really, mm-hmm. just enough for bodies to fit through. There was an engineer among this group and he, a Russian engineer, a Russian Jewish engineer, he managed to figure out a way to do it. They tried to light candles in, but sometimes there wasn't enough air for the candles to yeah. stay lit anyway. And I started to think, how come I never heard of this tunnel? You know, I've had, I'm Jewish myself. I've had quite a bit, taken a lot of Holocaust courses. I never heard of this What else is there in terms of Jewish resistance that I've never heard of? Mm -hmm. In fact, I had heard of this kind of what I now call an old myth that Jews went to their deaths like sheep to the slaughter during the Holocaust, that Jews reacted very passively to Nazi brutality and oppression. And I started to really wonder how true that was. Mm -hmm. And um, the time had come. Or after I won this award, which was kind of the pinnacle of my career, the time had come for me to leave Nova. Mm -hmm. And um, after I left this, this memory and this, I, I, the film that we made Holocaust Escape Tunnel, I I really think it was one of the, I actually co-directed this one, which I didn't usually do. And I just I was very, very, very taken by the story. Yeah. And I started doing some research on my own. I was uh, retired. COVID was starting. There wasn't much you could do. So I started doing some research. And I found out that there were multiple instances of Jewish resistance that, really, that scholars knew about, but it never reached the public. And I got very interested in it. And uh, the geoarchaeologist, Richard Freund, that I worked with, who was originally from the University of Hartford and then from Christopher Newport University in Virginia, started working with me. And I don't know, he and my husband, Sheldon, said you have to make this film. Mm-hmm.
2: I'm
1: like, oh my God. And you know, I knew I'd have to raise a lot of money. Well, it turned out to be a story that seemed to have a lot of appeal to people. And this idea of people re- resisting oppression, I mean, now it's what we see in the Ukraine. Right. And it's very inspiring right. to people. Right. So that's so I started to make it. I was able to raise uh, uh, over a million dollars over the years. It's taken me three years to do it. And I decided to work with Lone Wolf Media, who were my partners so often on NOVA. We went to Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland, looking for examples of Jewish resistance. And we reached out, we have several survivors who were resistance fighters who are in the film. And we have the children of others, and um, many of many resist uh, of the resistance fighters left testimonies, so we were able to read the testimonies. And I had actors do that. Um, mm-hmm. Corey Stoll, who's the star of Billions sure. and Sip, yeah. <laughs> also from Billions, and Diana Agron from a film called Shiva Baby. Um,
2: oh yeah, and, I saw that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So they um, and they read the parts and. These stories, it starts with one thing that's unique, I think, about this film is it takes a very broad look at resistance, starting with unarmed resistance, Mm -hmm. which is known as Amida, which means in Hebrew to stand up against. So this was unarmed um, feeding the hungry, opening soup kitchens. The Germans closed all schools. Children weren't allowed to be educated. So running illegal schools, um, documenting German war crimes so that the guilty would be punished after the war, sabotaging the Germans in all kinds of ways, and eventually it evolved into armed resistance. And of the 1,200 ghettos that were set up, there was some form of resistance in virtually every one. Of course, there were Jews in the forest. And then not a very commonly known fact, and I didn't know it either. There were seven um, uprisings in death camps. Six were led by Jews. One was led by Russian POWs. So wow. I didn't, this is a, it's kind of a, it's a, a part of history that sure. in some ways has been overlooked.
0: Yeah, it's, it's part this, of history, and it's a, it's an important part of the, the human spirit.
1: It is a very important part of the human spirit. To me, it's one thing to resist when you actually think you can succeed. It's Correct. another thing to resist when you really don't. You know you don't have a chance, but you do it for your honor and for the honor of the Jewish people and your people, wherever you are. And I think that it does tell something Really important about about human beings when they're pushed to the wall.
0: Yeah, and, and to they, a degree, a to a degree, a lack of resistance is almost uh, is almost an acquiescence of sorts that that will continually empower the oppressors.
1: Absolutely, and Abakovner, who was the a key resistance fighter in uh, the Vilna Ghetto, he wrote a manifesto and he basically said it's true we're weak and defenseless but we have no choice we have to resist resist to our last breath and they did so it's it is and it's an amazing story and it's it's very inspiring i find so i hope people film is just about finished Now we're submitting it to film festivals and hopefully it'll be on television one day. So we'll see. Well,
0: I look forward to the possibility of chatting with you again, specifically about that film. And maybe we can get some other folks who are involved in the making of that film to join us. This has really been a great conversation, Paula. I, uh, I, uh, I applaud your achievements and that talk about an understatement and just your continued vitality and and passion for doing what you do in the way that you do it. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Michael.